Now, we're certainly not immune from them in Canada. We get fires, we get floods, some areas get earthquakes. Are we prepared? And if we're honest, you probably already know the answer to that question. But to help us walk through preparedness, where we are, where we need to get, we're joined now by Julie Wright. Julie is a co-investigator for the Partners for Action Research Team, also a city councillor in Waterloo, Ontario. Julie, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Ted. Uh, your report is uh, very detailed, and it... it <laughs> It, it pinpoints a lot of areas of concern. So I guess I'll just ask maybe one broad question just to kind of get us off here. And that is if, if we know that natural disasters are recurring more frequently, uh, they're recurring with more severity, why aren't we more prepared than we should be? That is a great question, Sid. And um, there are three top barriers to that preparedness question. Number one is, it won't happen to me. Number two is, it's expensive to be ready. You know, you got to do things to your house or your property. You might need to stockpile food that you don't have room for. And number three is, you just don't know that you're at risk. Right, and that, that one seems, people might be surprised, but I could see if you move into a new area, if you've never lived on a coast or if you've never lived where, uh, you know, earthquakes may be an issue or you don't know that there's a floodplain there. Maybe you're newer to the country. Maybe you're just newer to the area. Those are things that uh, I think we can all understand. Uh, but the the thing that strikes me, and and on a human level, we all are, are, are guilty of this at some point on some issues, which is, well, I know it could happen, but it's probably not going to happen to me. And, and that's a barrier that it seems it would be tough to overcome. It is tough to overcome, and it's a really persistent barrier. So even though we've had some very, very major emergency events happen in Canada over the last decade especially, you know, in the last couple of years, it's been bang, 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 from hurricanes to wildfires to catastrophic flooding. Um, That hasn't changed Canadians' perception about their, their risk And we know that because we did back-to-back surveys in 2016 and 2020 to Partners for Action did to to look at um, whether people who actually live on floodplains are aware of their risk. And it remained at 6% awareness. So that means, you know, 94% of Canadians who live in a risk zone are unaware of that risk. Public Safety Canada came back in 2021 and determined that three-quarters of Canadians are unaware of or unconcerned about their risk related to extreme weather or natural hazards, and only one in ten people have taken measures to prepare. That's a little bit different in British Columbia, by the way, which is quite interesting. So Emergency Management BC did a study in 2017, and they noticed that you know, people in BC have an elevated awareness of earthquakes and wildfires, and I think that's mostly just because you know, you hear a lot about the San Andreas Fault. You, you hear a lot about, mm-hmm. you know, there's that historic experience with wildfires in BC. And, and so that has translated into slightly elevated awareness, but that doesn't always transfer into preparedness. So still only one in 10 people have taken preparedness actions. Okay, so if, if, if some of the barriers are that we're unaware and or unconcerned 
before we can start to prepare, we have to, I guess, be educated about the fact that you live in a floodplain or you live in an area that's susceptible to forest fires or floods. How do you, how, like, I'm assuming on some level we've been trying to do that already. How do, how, how does that message get out there and does it get out in the same manner to everybody or do you have to sort of piecemeal it and, and be very direct with certain communities? Yeah, so this is exactly why the Canadian Red Cross commissioned us to look at this question. So, um, you know, they, they really wanted us to dive into uh, what are the most effective means to increase awareness of floods, wildfires, and earthquakes, and to um, ask people what practical actions would be most helpful. And so we, we looked at five different demographics, uh, women, older adults, people with low income, Indigenous peoples and newcomers to Canada to better understand, you know, what what happens when you have um, different needs within a community. Uh, There are lots of people who are able-bodied, who are homeowners, who maybe are a little bit affluent and can take the time to prepare their properties or have property management services employed. But there's lots of people who don't have those sorts of resources. So what can we do to, to help people? And so what we learned by doing a literature review, we did uh, a survey of five different communities across Canada. Um, So we surveyed 500 people and we did focus groups to look at communication materials. So, you know, organizations like the Red Cross do national campaigns and that's part of this overall project, this inclusive resilience project that they've undertaken. It's funded by uh, Public Safety Canada. So there are these big campaigns. There are other partners that are involved in this project, like FireSmart, um, the BC Earthquake Alliance, uh, the Native Women's Association of Canada, and community partners. And really, it takes an all-of-society approach to raise awareness of, of our risks. It needs to come from all sorts of different directions. So um, what people told us was that the thing that they, you know, would would trust the most would be obviously communications from something like the, the Red Cross because it's an official organization. It's easy to identify, but they also want to hear from their local governments. Um, so wearing my city councilor hat, you know, I'm, I'm really very invested in, in that as um, a route to helping people better understand where they're at risk. And that's where you can get down to the neighborhood level and start communicating with groups of people who, socially are able to reinforce that message about, you know, we live on the edge of a floodplain and we should probably know the exit routes out of our community. Maybe we should do a practice session together. Um, You know, where would I source, um, you know, a a wet vac if I needed to, to dry up my basement, you know, who, who can help me, who has a car that's going to be able to get me out of this neighborhood? What grocery store am I going to go to? You know, so there's these practical considerations and we need to be tackling it from an all-of-society approach. Uh, Julie Wright is co-investigator, Partners for Action Research Team, also a city councillor with the City of Waterloo. And we were talking about the communications part of this and trying to get the word out because, as, as you so uh, aptly detailed, there are a lot of people that just are unaware of the risks that may be associated with where they happen to live. Uh, and then once we do that, what what is preparedness look like uh, if 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 a homeowner listening right now wants to be prepared for any of those types of natural disasters that we've been talking about what is where do you start with with a plan so I think one of the things that is most helpful is to realize that 
Um, you could go for a couple of days without any assistance. So you need to be self-sufficient for, you know, probably three days. And that means that you probably need some sort of emergency kit or a few supplies in your home that can help you get through that. And there's lots of examples of, you know, what should be in an emergency kit. And it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. You know, you can, you can, um, you know, scour, uh, um, you know, thrift stores and that kind of thing for, for items that you might need. You know, you need flashlight, you need water supply, clean water supply, you need some form of lighting, you need some canned goods, et cetera. So lots of, um, lots of examples of what could go into a kit. Um, and different hazards present sort of different situations. So, um, you know, for, for wildfire, you know, like you were saying at the top of uh, the, the show, you need to Sometimes you don't have a lot of warning. So you really need to have a grab-and-go bag. Um, similar with uh, an earthquake scenario where you might have to evacuate quite quickly, it's, that's also a similar situation with, um, with uh, rising flood water. Sometimes you don't have a lot of notice with flash floods. So you really need to have something that you can just throw in the car and go. And a lot of us are already prepared for car travel in the winter where – that's sort of second nature to us that, oh, yeah, you know, you have to have a few things in your car to be prepared for right. the elements. Um, so we need to start thinking about that in terms of our own homes. What do we need to have in order to keep ourselves safe? And do you find barriers there as well in terms of, number one, like you say, not everything has to be expensive, but some things do cost uh, some money and there are barriers there for people being able to or at least to feel like they're prepared? It takes time to do this stuff. And, you know, people have fragmented time. Um, they have limited means, uh, you know, especially with the, um, the cost pressures with, you know, the inflation period that we've just gone through and people's mortgages are more expensive than they used to be. It's hard to make these decisions when you think that it's probably not going to happen to you. So we have to sort of elevate that concern and remind people that it's just part of maintenance, you know, like light maintenance, the way that you would stock your car, the things that you need. Um, we just need to take those moments to ourselves and make sure that we have some canned goods on hand, that, you know, we've we've um, got a couple of water bottles for if the, the water goes off, you know. These are the important things that we just need to make sure that we're we're paying attention to. And another thing that has sort of been a blind spot, I think, in, in all um, risk awareness and preparedness messaging in Canada is people who live in apartments, townhouses, and high-rises. You don't see pictures of people living in those types of scenarios in our communication materials. It's, we, we just need to recognize that our more urban environments we need to be able to show what that looks like. What does it look like to be ready in an apartment building? And so through all of that, how long have you been working on this? Uh, it's, it was about a two-and-a-half-year research project with the Canadian Red Cross. And so what, what progress have you seen, uh, and, and where do you think that the next sort of uh, uh, best opportunity is for progress is as we try and get people, one, educated and, and, and two, prepared for these sorts of disasters? So I think, you know, in terms of what the Red Cross is embarking on, they, you know, they've, they've been doing the research with, with partners. 
Um, they have national public awareness campaigns rolling out. Um, they've planned community-based activities, and they have a granting project. So it's about getting to uh, the different organizations that have a better reach to the, the populations that they were specifically trying to to, um, to address, the women, older adults, people with low-income, Indigenous peoples living in urban environments, and newcomers to Canada. And, you know, so these are populations... Um, who have been, you know, maybe overlooked in previous campaigns or their needs have been overlooked. So that's one part of it is trying to have a more inclusive approach to the communication strategy around um, awareness and preparedness. And then I would say that the second part really has to do about fostering community connections. And this is something that I think we've all seen from the pandemic period where people can be really isolated um, and and cut off from community connections and this is actually a place where this is this is a way in which we can really reinforce uh, awareness and preparedness so whether it's a condo association whether it's neighborhood associations clubs cultural organizations you know in in the focus groups and um, supplementary interviews that we did with newcomers to Canada they mentioned you know it would be great if if somebody would come out to one of our cultural events and and talk to us about what the, the natural hazards are in, in our community. Um, so it's about just building bridges across different kinds of groups within our, our communities so that there's a more robust uh, process for, for communicating about awareness and preparedness. Well, no doubt there's a lot of work to be done, but it is uh, critically important that it get done. And, and thank you for sharing your insight with us tonight, Julie. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Sid. If you're listening to Kareem there on the news, if you caught the news hour uh, earlier this evening, uh, you've probably heard in great detail the situation in Hawaii. has been going on for a couple of days now. Uh, and, of course, with a situation uh, you know, so serious and so horrific, some of the details are changing uh, by the hour, if not by the minute, the the latest is uh, 53 people confirmed dead from the fires that have torn through Maui. Those mass evacuations continuing for uh, residents and for visitors. And we're joined tonight by Katie O'Connor, who is a former Calgarian who's been living in Maui uh, for the last couple of years. Uh, Katie, thanks for uh, making some time for us this evening. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Uh, today has been an, uh, an improvement. We're seeing some signs of recovery today. Um, with that said, it seems like the wind is picking back up, which I thought we were going to be uh, not seeing for the rest of the day. So it's a little concerning that we're seeing that again now later this afternoon. Yeah, that would be scary. Now, one of the things that we've been hearing since the start of this is just how, how little warning there was. Can you kind of take us back uh, to when you first, I guess, started to realize that something was happening? Yeah, so Tuesday morning is when we all started to um, hear that there were multiple fires that had started on the island. I think the news that everyone is seeing over on the mainland is is Lahaina, 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 but Mm -hmm. I think what people don't realize is that there there are multiple other fires burning on the island um, upcountry Maui, there was another one in Kula that I believe started before the fire in Lahaina and unfortunately engulfed many homes up there as well. Uh, so Tuesday, we were just kind of getting light of these fires starting. 
hearing of people being evacuated from their homes. Uh, and then as midday Tuesday came around, we started to hear some of the more devastating news from Lahaina that the fire was completely out of control. The high winds were completely fueling the fire. And by late afternoon Tuesday, we were hearing about all of Front Street and Lahaina being engulfed in flames, businesses being completely burnt to the ground. And then in the evening, we started to hear even worse details of people needing to flee into the ocean by foot because there was no other option. And what I'm hearing more today is that there was no warning, like you mentioned, for those in Lahaina because the cell service was down. They had a couple electrical towers down, so there was no cell service, no internet. And so those people in Lahaina, apparently it was very sudden, whereas us on the west side of the island or south side of the island, we did have more warning. We had more communication all day of what was happening. Um, So it was a little less sudden for us. Unfortunately, for those in Lahaina, it sounds like there were many, many people trapped in cars that unfortunately just exploded and were burnt down in Lahaina. So... As you mentioned earlier, the the death toll has increased now. We've just heard to 53, but I've been hearing some other some other reports that they're they're requesting hundreds of body bags being sent out there. So I think that it's just going to keep getting progressively higher, and it's it's very sad. It's uh, it's it's unimaginable. And so as as this is unfolding, and and, and you just walked us through in some detail. How were you getting your information? Because that's always critical in these in these situations. Was it was it traditional media, social media, word of mouth? How were you How were you trying to gauge uh, your level of exposure? I would say more than I ever would have expected. Word of mouth was the biggest source. Um, it is a very tight community, and so everyone immediately started um, talking about have Have you heard? Have you heard? Of, do you have you seen this person? Um, but social media also was the next big source for the news. Mm -hmm. Uh, We actually even turned on the television and we're getting very little news from the television. So our best source was, in our case, we were following Instagram and the county of Maui was doing as regular of updates as they could um, for evacuations. And then when we were ordered to evacuate, which we had to do Tuesday evening from our home, that we got a notification on our phone. Okay. Uh, And so you, you leave your home and you go where? Wherever you can, that is not in the direction of Orange Glow that evening. There was so you weren't you weren't necessarily point, you were not not necessarily evacuated to a spot. You were just ordered to leave your home. Exactly. So in our case, we drove towards the North Shore where my husband works and knew that that area was not very affected by the fires when he had left work earlier that day. So we headed over there and ended up spending the night there. And then we're cleared to return back to our home Wednesday morning, which thankfully was untouched. But when we left Tuesday night, you could see flames from the second floor of our of our home out the window. So it was very scary to leave. It was only about a mile away from our home when we left in Kihei, which is central Maui. Um, so, yeah, it's very scary to just pack up your car and your family and have no plan. Did you know... Uh, before you got back to your home, that it was okay? Or is that how you found out? We had a pretty good idea just based off of communication with other people that we knew in other parts of Kihei that it seemed that the fire hadn't 
crossed over the highway into our communities yet, but we had no actual confirmation until we got home. And obviously this is still a situation that is, uh, I mean, everybody there is still in the throes of it. So I'm going to assume it's too early to, to talk about recovering from this, but so but what is, what is life like today? What are people doing? How are, how, how are people existing right now through this? Yeah. Most non-essential businesses have made the decision to shut down um, and allow their employees to be with their families and or volunteer. We have everybody out volunteering at the many pop-up shelters that have, have popped up since the evacuation started and mass donation centers are opening. People are just trying to collect as much as they can, food, clothing, toiletries, pet items, getting anything that they can to people as quickly as they can. So really it does seem like all hands are on deck and everyone, if you are not working or are not evacuating, you're volunteering your time to to help however you can. Well, it sounds like there's a strong community there. Definitely. That's, that's been a very, very optimistic and beautiful thing that we've had in just the short 48 hours that we've seen is how close how close everyone is and how willing to support everyone everyone has been. So it's been really great. Well, Katie, we do appreciate, uh, can't imagine uh, what you and everybody there have been going through, and, and it's, it's not over yet. There's still a lot to, uh, uh, to deal with. So we appreciate you uh, taking some time to kind of paint a picture for us of what it's been like. We appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to share. As we continue with our coverage of the horrific situation in Hawaii, our thanks once again to former uh, Calgarian uh, Katie O'Connor, who was on with us. She's been living in Maui for the last couple of years and detailing the experience that she's been through here just over the last couple of days, being evacuated now, being allowed back to her home, one of them, uh, one of the homes that has been spared. Uh, we're joined now by Jack Dugan, who's uh, Chief Operating Officer, Director of Media Products, for Pacific Media Group, including Maui Now. Uh, Jack, uh, thanks for coming on the program tonight. Yeah, hey, Sid. Thanks for reaching out. Uh, I've been on your website. I've looked at the images. I've read the stories. We've been trying to get as much information as we can on this, and I know it's changing uh, literally by the minute. Uh, What's the latest? What can you tell us about what's happening there right now? Well, um, it's, it's obviously tragic overwhelming um i think um a a lot of the community is kind of still in a a state of shock just to have so much happen so fast and um you know to you know to kind of feel overwhelmed at like what what you can do i think a lot of the community is of course is is as much as you may know maui or your associate that's that's lived here it's a it's a, a small community and um you know people come together there's obviously a lot of a lot of millions of visitors that come through every year, but, um, the community itself is, is fairly small and, um, you know, protects itself, especially times like this, but it's, um, it's so, it's been so significant, the, the events and, um, you know, it's just, I think hard for people to get their heads around. Um, as far as, uh, most recent updates, as, as you point out, it's a, a constant, you know, flow of information from officials or, um, you know, also the community and through social media, obviously that's hard to, hard to know sometimes exactly what's happening, um, through those sources, but of course, photos and and videos are also telling, um, I think, uh, it was maybe about an hour ago, there was a a press event here in, uh, in Maui and Kahului with, um, 
the uh, the Mayor Bisson and um, Governor Josh Green, uh, Police Chief Pelletier, um, I think others as well um, were in the, the press event. Um, as far as new information that came out, I I know sadly the the death toll is at least at um, 53 souls. It's um, it's it's terrible. Uh, I've heard that that's going to continue to climb just by nature of, uh, you know, the, the police and fire department and, and the other rescue um, organizations still, still assessing everything and still checking homes or what remains of homes. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot. So, Yeah. And, and it seems from afar, obviously, but it just seems there's almost no baseline for something like this. I mean, just to, to hear the descriptions of people fleeing into the ocean to, to escape flames and those sorts of things. It's, it's hard it's hard even, you know, having, you know, known of that for a couple of days now to even process what that would be like for people and, and considering that it, it happened instantaneously. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when this was all first going down, as you as you may or may not be aware, actually, the, the first fire was upcountry up Maui, where actually I, I live and I grew up. And, um, and then, you know, things were going on with that. And then we start hearing um, information about, you know, Lahaina, and it happened incredibly fast. Um, that evening um, that the fire uh, came up and essentially just took over the entire town. You know, you you hear these, you know, different reports again, mostly from, you know, social media initially. And uh, as we know, there's, there's, um, you know, some evidence and truth within those, uh, that type of content, but also not official. And so it was hard for me to believe that that could actually be happening at the time. I think probably for a lot of us here that weren't there at the moment on that side to, to, to actually think that people are escaping fire by by running into the ocean you know um but as as you know time went on and information came out it, it was absolutely what happened the the town was engulfed in flames by um you know i think it started as a brush fire i don't think there's information at this point about exactly how the fire started it's been incredibly dry um lahaina is a dry uh I, I would think probably one of the most driest areas of maui along with maybe parts of kihei um and you know the strong winds, and it just took over the town within a matter of minutes, as as the reports have have said. And um, you know, uh, then you can kind of see how that could happen. And it's just it's like a it's just one of those un, unimaginable events that you you feel like is is only in a, a real bad movie or something. And and here it's you know right in our backyard, and people were were literally running into the ocean to escape the heat and the smoke and. Um, yeah, it's it's true. Those reports are true. And, um, you know, I've talked directly to some of the uh, members of the fire department or, or rescue and, you know, from from pulling people out of, of the ocean. And it's uh, it's hard to imagine. But, yeah, it's, uh, you know, we appreciate there's been so much support, uh, overwhelming and just uh, it helps, uh, you know, from all different um, people uh, from all over the world. And, um, you know, it's it's definitely um Good to see that. We appreciate um, you guys thinking about us and um, taking care um, to, to learn about what's going on. There's probably going to be more. A lot of people are asking, how can we help? What can we do? Or what, what can we donate? Who do we donate to? And um, there's going to be more, I think, clear information on, at least from our, our group in, in Maui now, um, as far as, that, as as time goes on, just as needs are assessed and, um, you know, the organizations that, um, that are, are vetted and trustworthy or, you know, um, there'll be more of that coming out. I think we have some source, some sources on, on our website right now as far as legitimate um, organizations of people 
their hearts are, are with us and they want to do something, but obviously um, they're not here. That's, I think that's on our website um, on one of the pages. So, And, you know, when something like this happens, I know for a lot of people, their thoughts turn to the people who are most impacted. People have lost loved ones, of course, and there are probably people who don't know where their loved ones are right now. We think of first responders, uh, and they're probably the most trained and prepared among us. But, you know, when, when something is this horrific, when it comes on uh, this quickly, you wonder if, if even the most trained among us are, are trained for this. Uh, and, and They're going through this for the first time themselves. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I certainly wouldn't wouldn't know the half of, you know, the training that that those uh, brave men and women go through. Um, Hawaii, as you know, is a unique, unique area. We have um, obviously a, a very vast, large and powerful ocean all the way around us and weather that's, um, you know, um, not necessarily typical for other areas of the world. I know that uh, mm-hmm. the training, you know, I know, I know a lot of that, a lot of people are friends and uh, family and um, people I know well, I know that there's, there's a lot of um, good training and, but yeah, like you say, I mean, how do you how do you anticipate something you know of this scale and magnitude and, and speed at which it happened? And then you combine, uh, you know, it's easy people. Um, you know, sometimes the, the focus has been so much on the Heine, um, it's easy um, to to overlook that there was a handful, um, a good handful of homes lost. Um, I'm not sure of any uh, fatalities um, in Kula upcountry Maui, but that was going on simultaneously and. You know, you can just imagine, um, you know, the small um, departments initially here before extra help came in. Uh, how, how do they how do they respond? You know, um, with everything going on so fast at, at all at once, you know, and that's yeah, overwhelming. Uh, it certainly is. And uh, uh, we, we appreciate you uh, taking some time to speak with us about this. It's, it's certainly an important worldwide story, but we can't lose sight of the fact that it's, it's most important for the people that, that that live there, that have lost and uh, are now in need of uh, of recovering from this. So we thank you for taking the time with us tonight, Jack. Yeah, much appreciated. Aloha. You know, something we all have to do yeah, pretty much every week. And now we have a decision. I'm talking about grocery shopping. We have a decision now. Once we've got our groceries, do we do what we always used to do and go over and use the cashier? Or do we veer over here and use self-checkout? It seems that a lot of shoppers are upset about the lack of cashiers. And yet there are studies that show that more than half of us are using them. There could be job implications for sure for cashiers. And so we kind of wanted to get a handle on this. Where are we going with the retail industry? Is this good? Does it stop here? What else might be in store? Craig Patterson is the founder and publisher of Retail Insider and joins us now. Craig, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Ah, self-checkout. You know what? I, I resisted this for a while. I thought this is not for me. I am not an early adopter. There's no way I will be able to scan my own groceries and, and not have it go sideways. And I did it one time when I had like two or three items. I said, and there was nobody else around. I'm like, okay, I'll try it. Loved it. Loved it. Um, not everybody does though. And I'm not sure, you know, I, I've got some theories about where, where this may end up and I might not like where it goes, but for now... I actually don't mind it. Where are we with this? And is this all uh, profit driven for grocery stores and other retailers to 
move away from cashiers and into self-checkout situations? Oh, you know, I'm not a big fan of this either, to be honest, or at least I like to have choice in uh, Mm. stores uh, in terms of, uh, you know, what does the consumer want? Uh, I was, I, in preparation for this uh, call today, (laughs) I visited a few stores that I know have self-checkouts and, uh, uh, I was sorely disappointed to see that in some cases uh, the option to go to a human was not available. And that, uh, I, I think, is actually unacceptable because you've got people with disabilities, you've got seniors, people with eyesight issues, which I guess is a disability, and those who might just even want to say hello to someone. I mean, it, it's you, you don't see someone behind a till at a workplace. It looks like uh, they're not trying very hard. It, it doesn't look like the retailer you know, respects the consumer. I don't know if other people would share that opinion, but... I live in a building where, you know, if we don't have a concierge behind the desk, we ask questions, <laughs> which and it doesn't happen, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and I guess that's where I was going when, and, and maybe we'll park that for now and we'll get back to it later about where this may end up. But it looks like there's already been a little bit of that creep where uh, it was always seen, and it's been around for a while now. I don't know how long, a year, a couple of years uh, maybe longer than that. I just had never maybe personally used it before, but it was always it was always that choice. And it seems to me that if there was, w- with the choice, and if I only have a few items and I go through it and it's convenient, that's one thing. But I don't think I would ever think to go through it with a full uh, cart of, of groceries or, or, you know, tools if I was at, uh, you know, a hardware store or something like that. Because then it would seem that it might have the opposite effect. If there are no cashiers and now everybody is trying to funnel through all of their purchases through these self-checkouts, that it might have the opposite effect and actually slow everything down. Lines become longer and even more irritating than they might have otherwise been. I think to a degree. At the same time, of course, they've got a lot of self-checkouts, or at least there you know, seems to be far more of those in a lot of these grocery stores and drugstores compared to what you would have uh, with a regular person behind the till. So in theory, yes. I mean, my experience was it took me longer to you know, check out in terms of getting the groceries. I, I was at a lot loss store, so I was trying to uh, redeem points, and I redeemed $50 worth out of spite because I knew that was going to hit their profit margins because I had to be the one doing the work to you know, check out my own groceries. Uh, and it, it, I, it was a friction point. And then on top of this, and this is what really infuriates me as someone who studies uh, you know, customer behavior and and customer service in stores is not having bags available because we've got a situation where, you know, plastic bags are not just beside tills anymore. The government's determined that plastic bags for some reason are bad. Uh, and have, now we have these reusable bags, which I have hundreds of them. It's just ridiculous. Uh, you have to ask for a bag. It's another friction point at the till. I think it's ridiculous, honestly. I just think it's really badly planned out and it's consistently badly planned out. It's not even just one retailer I can criticize. Uh, I, I, I go to retailers now or frequent them, like say a Rexall, not that I'm doing an advertisement here, but you know, that actually have people behind the till. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and people need that. There are people, as you mentioned, that just may not be able to uh, use the self-checkout on their own. And it wasn't that long ago that we were hearing stories about, you know, setting aside specific uh, uh, cashiers who would be there for the sole purpose of carrying on conversations with people who, uh, especially as we're coming out of uh, a pandemic, who just were kind of yearning for that human contact and to have a conversation with someone. And, and this would, uh, you know, on surface at least be the opposite of that. I think it would be. I was in Montreal recently at a Pharma Prix, which is the equivalent of Shoppers Drug Mart with a different name. Uh, literally, there were no humans at tills available. They'd shut them down. It was uh, in the evening, and 
They're like, no, 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 you have to do self-checkouts. On top of this, by the way, they ran out of bags. I just, it was unbelievably a bad experience. But <laughs> You're not having a lot of luck with the bags lately, are you? <laughs> no, no. In this case, they had $2 awful looking, uh, you know, the, the bags you get as a gift or something. I think it had a giant fruit on them. It was just awful looking. But um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I guess I've had the, the, the pleasure of having extremely negative experiences in these stores uh, to the point that uh, I, I recently did my own podcast on the topic and very much criticized, especially Loblaw stores right now. Uh, you know, I'll call them out. I, I do it to their faces, so I'll say it anywhere. Uh, you know, the, the, the bad experiences that I think a lot of consumers are having from not having that choice. I mean, some definitely, like you mentioned yourself, don't mind self-checkouts and they prefer them sometimes. But uh, for those who don't want them, you know, today I, I didn't want to do a self-checkout, but, you know, I there was literally one tail open at this one grocery store. <laughs> The lineup was huge, and it was people with tons of groceries, you know, full carts. And I thought, for God's sake, I'm going to have to use the self-checkout because I've got a basket. And I did it, and it was it was an annoying experience, I would say, overall. You know, I don't want to complain too much, but uh, it, it was not a good experience. Uh, the friction point, uh, among other things, was having to also purchase bags, which were not at the till. Uh, they're doing. If I was teaching retail, I would use this as an example of what not to do. And perhaps we should assume that as retailers go down this this road, uh, assuming they're going to continue going down this road, because it, it almost sounds in some respects that, you know, it, we complain about things that are new and happening, and it's almost like, you know, the equivalent of standing on the shore of the ocean and yelling at the waves to stop coming in. They're coming in. Uh, it's just about how we can tweak it along the way to make it more palatable for us. And But but the survey that I, that I was uh, uh, talking about earlier, this was in the, in the United States, they checked the habits during 1.2 billion trips to grocery stores and found that self-checkout, so this is when consumers had a choice, made up 55% of all customer transactions. So if we're thinking that we're still in the early stages of this and still over half of people are voluntarily, because I don't think in most of these cases yet it would be you have to go through self-checkout if they're voluntarily veering in that direction, that as a retailer... I might be saying, well, number one, I can save some money on labor. But number two, it seems that customers are telling me that they like this. I'd be curious if customers like it or if they just were doing it out of the fact that the lineups were really long at the tills. If they, obviously they had tills in this case, if they're saying there was a choice that had humans behind them. <laughs> but um, I, I question that, uh, at least to a degree. At the same time, uh, you, you know, if you're buying certain things, you might feel like someone might be judging you. I mean, if you're buying condoms or something at a drugstore, perhaps you want to go through a self-checkout. Or not, I don't care personally. But, <laughs> but nevertheless, you know, some people may choose to, to do that. But um, you know, the, the fact that the choice may not be there, I think, is really concerning for a lot of consumers. And it's, uh, it, it just seems to be getting worse. I mean, the question is, why would a person even go into a store? This has driven me to more online shopping. I wasn't going to shop online for groceries before. I like doing it in person. But uh, I have very little reason to uh, go into a physical grocery store unless I really need something now. Because uh, I just find the experience isn't good. And also, you know, we've got these lower price grocery stores. You know, there's no frills and food basics, depending where you live in the country. Uh, versus the more expensive grocery stores, and the experience now with the more expensive grocery stores is is really no different than than the cheaper ones. I mean, you're bagging your own groceries, you're uh, you know doing self checkout. I mean, if anything, you're probably getting a better experience with the checkouts at cheaper stores because they're not uh, uh, you know doing the self checkouts in the same way. And then on top of that, you've got theft. So Walmart has started decommissioning some of its uh, 
self-checkouts because there's been too much theft. So I, I, who knows where this is going to go? I, we may not see as many of these in the future because uh, people may be stealing. And you can't, you can't blame them to a degree. With the cost of groceries, we're getting gouged. There's no question there. I don't care what these retailers say. I've looked at prices in different stores, and, and you're not, you know, these big retailers are still gouging. And um, and then consumers are having to, you know, basically bag their own groceries. This is something that, you know, staff have done in the past. And uh, it's, it's a cost savings. This isn't for the consumer. The retailers don't care about the consumer. They care about profits. But Craig, I'm interested. Is this is this a sign of things to come? What other trends are you seeing in the retail industry, or uh, where you know that that interaction with with consumers? We went for a couple of years where there was none. It was mandated that we could not have, uh, you know, that human contact when we were out and about. Uh, is this a sign of things to come that 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 businesses are moving more and more towards, you know, again for lack of a better word, contactless shopping or experiences? I think so. I mean, you look at Dollarama, you look at a lot of these stores, it's becoming far more common. I would be surprised if we saw it retract, unless shoplifting became such a big issue that the stores basically had to pull these things because, you know, consumers couldn't behave. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's the only thing that's going to stop this. I mean, it's a matter of, I think, dollars and cents. Uh, retailers, you know, it is hard to find staff, but at the same time, with our immigration levels here in Canada, especially in Ontario right now, uh, you know, there are people looking for jobs. So uh, I, I do think this is a trend to come, but uh, it's, it's a trend at low, with lower priced retailers and it's a trend with food retailers. We're seeing it, I think, with Canadian Tire. We're seeing it with, you know, Shoppers Drug Mart. Uh, so we've got drug stores, we've got grocery stores. But at the same time, you, you see higher end retail offering more customer service. So, so there's, been a, there's been a move towards, uh, uh, you know, giving people what they want when they want it but also giving people a premium experience, but they're going to have to pay for it. And that's, that's something to consider too. So I think that if anyone is in sort of, you know, regular stores, that that's one thing, but say you're shopping on Alberni street in Vancouver or Blur street in Toronto, uh, you better be getting that top notch customer service experience. And obviously a self checkout is not going to be part of that. Yeah. And the other thing I, I wonder about these sort of, I guess most trends start with the bigger uh, retailers or bigger corporations in any industry that that have the resources to experiment and and implement new new practices and new technologies, uh, but the trickle down effect to some of those you know the smaller retailers with a very small margins and I'm wondering if some of these uh, these innovative ideas although not every it may not be everybody's cup of tea it may help some of them make ends meet a little bit better at the end of the day now again to your point some of those smaller ones may be the ones that really want to give that that human uh, contact and want that to be part of the experience, but it might be an option for some struggling businesses out there because it's not easy for anybody right now. Could be, but also these self-checkout machines are expensive. So the big retailers can afford to buy them and put them mm-hmm. in, but I don't think your local mom and pop is going to become checkoutless. Uh, plus the, the opportunities for theft could be astronomical. I, I just, I, I would be very cautious for any small retailer doing something like that. Uh, surely out of safety, I think at this point for, for the, for the product and for the profit margin. Craig, we thank you for your time tonight. It's been interesting. Appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks for having me. At the top of the show, you know, we were talking about uh, the movie industry and the resurgence, Barbie and Oppenheimer and records being set and people flocking back to theaters. And weren't we all just yearning for this sort of experience over the last few years? We got to get back to that. And there was some fear that we never would that it would never be the same. And now we have these blockbuster movies 
that everybody wants to go see. But then it turns out somehow, somewhere along the way, we forgot how movie theaters work. We forgot how we're supposed to behave. Now, we're joined now by etiquette expert Lisa Gratz. You can check out her stuff at lisagratz.com. Thanks for coming on the program. Lisa, where did we lose our way? Where have we gone wrong? Sid, Sid, Sid. I think part of it was the pandemic of 2020, right? We were all at home for so long, streaming shows at home, so we could talk on our phones, we could talk to our spouses or our children, and it was okay. But that does not translate well, (laughs) as we know, into a movie theater because (laughs) silence is golden. We have to be reminded. Right. Like, well, like, I know, but you know, like you, know you, 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 you sit down, you shut up and you watch the movie. Oh, if it were only that easy. But you know how when you sit down now, they have to tell you to turn off your phones. Now, that's been going on for years, way mm-hmm. before the pandemic. But I think it's so much harder. I mean, there was the flip phone, which half your viewers probably never heard of. And then, you know, you would hear a buzz. But now it's the light from the phone that is so yes. distracting. So. Yes, silence is golden, but also when people check their messages or their texts, it's so distracting to everybody. So we just have to remember these basic rules, and if you need to make a call, you go to the lobby. If you're going to the movie theater, how about just turning your phone off? It's it's mind-boggling that, that, that someone would make plans to go to a movie and then not make <laughs> plans to just sit there and enjoy the movie. And and part of it, I'm, I'm sure, like... Uh, I was reading some stuff earlier in the week and, and there's videos out there. I mean, I don't ever remember there being fights in movie theaters and now people are oh, I know. They're literally fighting in movie theaters and uh, because somebody pulled their phone out, I guess maybe they wanted to film the film and become maybe right. TikTok famous or something and somebody else takes exception to that and all of a sudden we've got a brawl in a movie theater. Well, you know, Yogi Berra had his Yogi-isms, and I have mine, Lisa-isms. Number one in a movie theater is never engage with someone because there could be movie rage. It's just gotten to a point of ridiculousness. But if you have a problem with someone in a theater or you see something going on, never confront them. You know, you're going to have to leave your seat and go to the front and get the, you know, popcorn kit who's like 16 to, you know, help you. You have to take a deep breath, Sid. We're all in this transition, right? And, I mean, it's well, a transition. And the, and, the, and the point of not engaging is a great one. It's probably something that uh, we could take not only in movie theaters, but, but elsewhere. But the, I think, you know, if people do just take a bit of a deep breath and, and go get help and try and diffuse the situation that way. But it is, I, I also do see where it can be highly annoying when you're this there to enjoy the experience and and all you're looking at is you're they're holding their screen up and you're basically looking at their phone instead of the movie that you've paid to enjoy last week i went to see mi with my husband and we sit Mm -hmm. down and he has just really bad movie karma (laughs) whenever i go to the movies with him there is a problem so we sit down and this man in front of us his phone rings so my husband looks at me (laughs) and what does he say nothing nothing and we're looking at each other going, what do you mean nothing? You're going to see Mission Impossible in like three minutes. You know, like he's in his own house talking to somebody. We, we of course, had to move our seats before the movie even started. Oh, man. Now, is this, is this symptomatic of, of where we are now? Like, we, we, I mean, we, we're talking about movie theaters, and it just kind of crossed our, 
our desk earlier in the week, and we thought it might be a, an interesting conversation to have and a reminder to people about about how we're supposed to behave. But is this just symptomatic of where we are now, where you know we, we, people are talking on speaker phones in airports and think everybody else must be highly interested in the business deal they're 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 trying to negotiate in front of everybody? Uh, is this where we are now? Yeah, I know. I think it might be where we are, but I don't know if it's that we all have an interest in listening to what everyone talks about. I just think this is our new world, you know, of we walk around with our phones, which is fine. I'm on mine all the time, but you have your earbuds in and you think someone's talking to you down the street when they're really talking to someone in their phone. Uh, I was at a store today. I'm actually on holiday in Nantucket, Massachusetts, and a woman was on her speakerphone in a in a store. And someone said to her, ma'am, can you turn the speaker off? And she she didn't even realize what she was doing. So I think, I really do think, I mean, the rules of etiquette have changed before our very eyes, especially when it comes to communication. And it really had to do with the pandemic. I mean, more so than ever. You know, what is 2020, 21, 22, 23, Mm -hmm. here we are. And we're hopefully out of it and past it. But yet we still, you know, we're forgetting that there are other people around us. It's not just about you and me. It's a whole society that we're forgetting about. And I just have to remember that when I'm out and about, I have to be courteous and I have to remind myself, Lisa, turn your phone off. When someone else is talking to you, you talk to them, not to your phone, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know where we're headed, except that we have to remember to be kind and considerate when we're around other people. And I just think it's something that we've, we've forgotten in a very short period of time. Well, and there are, and you, you know, you kind of spark something there when you're talking about just turning your phone off when you're talking to someone. I mean, there's nothing more polite to me than if you're, you know, you go into someone's office and they just take their phone and they turn it upside down or they put it in a drawer and now they're looking at you. And it's a very small gesture, but it's one that not a lot of people do. And it, But it can be very yeah. meaningful because now you know you've got their attention and they're there, they're there for that purpose of just having some sort of a conversation or some sort of a connection. Correct. Yes, absolutely. And if we could all remember that, you know, basic consideration, it would be so helpful. Like you say, not just in the movie theater, when we're in a shopping mall or in the grocery market. I mean, these things happen everywhere we go with the phone. And I wonder if Steve Jobs knew what he did when he created the (laughs) iPhone. I often think of him when I think how much technology is in my one little phone and how much business I can do. But at the same time, I think, wow, this is a really powerful and dangerous tool for many people who don't know how to use them properly and when. Yes, it, it is powerful and it can be dangerous. Hey, th- thanks for uh, for jumping on with us uh, tonight. I know we gave you a bit of a short notice today, but, but we appreciate the conversation. Thanks for having me, Sid. But first, on to robots. We're joined by uh, Jenny Vanos, who's Associate Professor in the School of Sustainability at Arizona State University. Jenny, thanks for coming on the program tonight. Hi, Sid. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, We're here to talk about, and I want to get this right, the world's first indoor-outdoor breathing, sweating, and walking thermal mannequin robot. And so my first question is, other than maybe scaring someone like me, what's the purpose of this robot? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, and I think a lot of people, it's catching a lot of people's attention. Um, the the main purpose is to be able to do more advanced research studies to understand 
the impacts of extreme environments, and, and particularly for our research, the impacts of heat on humans without exposing humans to dangerous situations. So what sorts of things, and, and are you just in the infancy of this? Is this just starting now? or uh, and, and if so, what are, you, what are you thinking you might be able to learn and what applications might there be for this? Yeah, so we actually just received uh, Andy, the thermal mannequin, in May of this year from the company Thermetrics, who builds these thermal mannequins. And there's quite a few around the world, but Andy is their newest, most advanced thermal mannequin. And as you said, it's the only one that can actually be taken outside in extreme heat, or we can move Andy around into diverse indoor or outdoor built environments. Where he normally lives is in our thermal chamber at ASU. Um, So in the thermal chamber, we have been doing a lot of studies that control temperature and humidity levels, um, wind flow, um, and then also adding in radiation. And so we can tweak all of these different parameters to do tests on thermoregulation, sweating, clothing, uh, to, to, to create better clothes that, that people will feel more comfortable in in the heat. And actually a lot of companies like Nike have their own thermal mannequins to do similar projects. Well, it's interesting. And we know uh, that, you know, people die from the heat. And so there, I'm sure there's some very, yeah. um, you know, important implications in the research that you're doing. And uh, all indications are that we're going to be seeing, you know, more heat waves and more extreme heat waves in the coming decades. Uh, so I'm sure there's that aspect to it, too. We, we'll talk about the other applications for, for athletes and clothing, but uh, I'm sure there's some very serious uh, uh, issues that you might hope to address with this. There is for sure. And I mean, I'm I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. We have dealt with, uh, in, in the month of July, an entire month where every day, Um, got above 43 degrees Celsius with a lot of days reaching 47, some 48 degrees Celsius. Those are air temperatures. It's it's extremely hot conditions over a very long period of time that a large portion of the population is dealing with. And everyone experiences heat differently. And with Andy, we're able to create virtual twins or a virtual family where we can start modeling diverse populations. So often, you know, when we use a humidex or heat index, it's making an assumption that everyone responds the same, which tends to be an average white male. And Andy allows us to change body size, change not his body size, but model it with virtual twins, uh, change uh, thermoregulatory properties with age, uh, sweat rates, um, uh, different factors that could be affected by people who are ill taking medications that affect their ability to handle the heat, which then in turn can potentially result in them ending up in the hospital or worse. Um, And so we can do this with Andy without having to subject people to the heat. Uh, Of course. And so then there's those, um, I guess there's just the need for, you know, as a species, we just need to be able to exist sometimes in extreme heat conditions. And then there is that other side Mm -hmm. of it that you kind of mentioned earlier where um, there's existing and then maybe there's thriving. If we have kids, we want them to be able to go out and and enjoy the outdoors. Mm -hmm. We want to be able to go for a hike. Uh, There are athletes who may be expected to perform in extreme heat, and and this could Mm -hmm. could help along those lines as well. Definitely. And actually some of the work, what, what makes it valuable to be able to bring Andy outside is to be able to also test the different environments in an urban area and the way we design them to try and mitigate 
heat in a city like Phoenix, or we can even do this in other cities that have different types of climates. How does building design, types of materials used, different types of trees, water, missing systems, how does that influence some regulation of Andy on the most extreme days? That can help us create more livable cities, livable environments, um, situations that might not use as much energy and thus thus mitigate, uh, you know, increasing climate change. So there is definitely a lot to it that, that we will be studying over the next four years with this grant. I was just going to ask you, is that sort of the time frame you're looking at here is about four years? Yeah, with this specific grant, we received $2 million from the National Science Foundation here in the U.S. to be studying a lot of these um, these questions. Um, and it's it's this interdisciplinary grant with engineers and physiologists and climate scientists. So it's, it's really exciting to be able to do this work with such a diverse group of people um, to address diverse populations um, and, and extreme heat, which is, yes, as you mentioned, only going to increase as, as time goes on with urban growth and, and climate change. Well, it certainly it sounds like exciting research and very interesting and, and much needed uh, research as well, considering, as you say, where we are and where we, where we might be headed. So thank you for uh, taking yeah. the time out of your day to, to spend it with us this evening. We appreciate it. Of course. Thanks so much for having me, Sid. You may have heard about the Perseid meteor shower. It's already been active, I guess, for a couple of weeks now, at least. It's one of the big ones every year. And so the question is, is it worth staying awake for this weekend? We're about to find out. Dennis Vita joins us. He's a postdoctoral associate at Western University and the project lead of the Global Meteor Network. Dennis, welcome to the program. Uh, you know, this meteor shower, Perseid meteor shower, is one that I think a lot of people have heard about over the years. Before we get into, uh, you know, how we can view it, where we can, can view it, and what we should look for, uh, I'm curious as to if you can just give us a little, a, a quick refresher or a quick primer on when we talk about meteor showers, what are they and what should we be looking for? Yeah, so meteors are nothing but dust particles, so literally millimeter size, uh, similar to sand, and that uh, they enter our atmosphere at hypersonic speeds. So that's, we're talking about thousands of uh, meters per second. Uh, so we measure meteor speeds, and the average is about 20 kilometers a second. So not kilometers an hour, kilometers a second. And when they enter the atmosphere, they're so fast that they literally strip electrons from the air and this air, the, the, the atoms of air, when they recombine back, um, they produce light. And that's what meteors are. Are you saying, so then when we see a meteor flash through the sky, that's mm-hmm. not a cluster of these grains of sand or grains of matter? It's, it could be a single grain that's making that much light? They are very, very small. Correct. So they are mostly made uh, of, uh, we, we call them porous dust aggregates or fractal dust aggregates. And these are extremely, extremely fragile objects. So if, if you were to blow on a meteor before it enters the atmosphere, it would fall apart. Uh, meteors before they enter the atmosphere are called meteoroids. And you might have heard of asteroids. Asteroids are just bigger. Everything bigger than a meter is an asteroid. Everything smaller than a meter is a meteoroid. And when it enters the atmosphere, it starts breaking up at heights of about 100 kilometers, and that's the average meteor height. 
Okay, and now I'm going to put myself out there and ask you the difference between that or similar. Like, what, what people say, I just saw a shooting star. What what are they actually seeing? The shooting star is is a meteor. So the definition of a meteor is simply just a phenomenon, the the light and the ionization and the shock that it produces. And when if it's big enough, and if it's slow enough, it can fall to the ground and leave a meteorite. But meteorites are only produced by they're a much different class of uh, objects than the ones that produce meteor showers. So meteor showers are produced by cometary meteoroids. So literally, a meteor shower is nothing but a comet's tail that the Earth plows through. And all these little dust particles, when they enter the atmosphere, they start burning up, and we see that as a meteor shower. Well, you make it sound so simple, and uh, and I think you've already got us all understanding a little bit more of what, uh, if we get outside over the next uh, few days here, what we might be looking at. But what makes this one, what makes Perseids so uh, special, it seems? Yeah, so the Perseids are one of the, the biggest meteor showers that we can see um, on Earth. Uh, there are a couple of other ones, uh, but they're not really that great to observe visually, for a simple reason is that they occur in December and January. So the weather is bad. It's really cold outside. People don't want to go out and see them. The Perseids, on the other hand, happen in August. Uh, a lot of people are off, and the weather is usually nice in August, so we can observe Perseids quite well. However, from the scientific standpoint, the other two are as important as the Perseids. Um, but we want the general public just to go out and enjoy the show, uh, which they usually can't in December and January. All right. Well, so we'll talk about the show and how people can get out and enjoy it here over the next few days. But but if we can back up, what makes those other showers, even though they happen when it's colder and maybe people don't want to get out and take a look at them, but what makes scientifically or from your point of view, what makes those special? The most important thing is that, uh, you know, in the last, uh, it's in, you know, the 1960s, the uh, human spaceflight has become a very, very important thing uh, to to us people on Earth, and we are overly reliant on satellite infrastructure. And those things are extremely sensitive. As we discussed before, a millimeter-sized meteoroid, uh, although it's small, travels at extremely high speeds. So if you were to be in space and hit by this tiny grain of sand that is traveling extremely fast, it has the same kinetic energy as a bullet. As you might imagine, an asteroid doing a spacewalk outside, getting hit with one of these things, it's not really, uh, it's not, not really that great, right? Uh, so for every eight-hour spacewalk, there's a one in 5,000 chance of a fatality from a meteoroid impact. So one in 5,000 when there are, there's no major meteor shower activity. So you have a kind of a very background rate. If you were to go out, you would maybe see one or two meteors an hour. So basically no meteors. However, what if there is a major meteor shower active? So instead of one or two, we're talking about, you know, 100 or 1,000 meteors an hour. So suddenly those astronauts are in trouble. And we want to know when they happen and we want to make accurate predictions. And that's why we need to observe meteor showers. And we can take this data, put it in our modeling and make better forecasts. Uh, So what we do is we literally forecast space weather. Uh, Perseid shower, it's on right now. Like it's been active for a bit, right? Yeah. So the Perseid started start in late July and uh, last until the, the second half of August. Uh, but really, it's uh, just a few days uh, around 
uh, let's say between August to maybe 9 to August 15 is when you can see a lot of Perseids. Uh, they really ramp up in activity, and the peak is usually between August 11 and 12. Uh, so the peak is going to be this Saturday night. Uh, this Saturday night, um, and uh, you'll be able to see the greatest number of meteors if you live in the northern hemisphere uh, in the early morning. So starting Saturday night up to Sunday morning, because simply the uh, uh, all Perseids come from one spot in the sky, which is called the radiant. So because all uh, dust particles in a comet's trail, they all kind of tr- travel together parallel to one another. And when they enter the Earth's atmosphere, they're all kind of like on similar orbits travel in the same way, and then we all see them coming from the same direction. But the Perseid radiant is going to be quite low in the evening, and overnight it's going to increase in elevation. It's just going to come up in the sky because the Earth is rotating, uh, and you're going to see more meteors because Earth is not shielding a part of, uh, a part of your kind of field of view. Let's put it that way. Uh, but you'll still be able to see on Saturday night, uh, you'll be able to see about one meteor every two minutes uh, if you are in a kind of a decent uh, area that is not extremely uh, bright, doesn't have a lot of uh, lights. Uh, and in the morning, that rate is going to increase to maybe one meteor per minute. And uh, it's also very important to say that if you want to observe meteors, you should really get out the city, go to a rural, rural dark area, allow about 10 minutes for your eyes to adjust to darkness. So don't look at your phone. If you do, turn on the the red light filter. Don't look at any bright lights. And then uh, your night vision takes about 10 minutes to uh, turn on. Let's put it that way. And it's very easy to, to cancel out this effect if you look at anything bright, and especially with anything with blue light. And for people listening, I guess if, if people are listening in a rural area, it's much easier to find those dark places. But even in cities now, a quick Google search and you can find these dark sky areas uh, within fairly close proximities, I think, to most major cities. Yeah, if you drive out maybe you know, even 20 minutes or, or, or half an hour outside the city, it's, it's going to be perfectly fine. Um, as long as there aren't any bright lights that shine directly um, at you, uh, it's going to be fine. It's some kind of dark country road or any, anything like that, it's going to be perfect. I, I will say quite a few years ago, I went out uh, and took a camera to try and get some photographs of, uh, of this meteor shower. And mm-hmm. I wasn't successful. That was pre-digital and all the rest of it. Uh, you know, I thought <laughs> I had a couple of shots, but you don't know till like weeks later when you get your photographs back. But it's, it's, it's much easier now to take nighttime photography. But would you have any tips for people just if, if they're looking to capture images of, of this meteor shower? Oh, yeah. So um, anyone who's ever done any astrophotography, they know, oh, I just need to increase the exposure, just kind of keep the camera running and I'm going to get more light. But with meteors, it's different because they last for such a short time. If your exposure is really long, then the background sky and the stars are going to drown, drown out the meteors. So what you really want is you want to crank up the sensitivity, but still keep the exposure time short. And then you're going to end up with some decent Perseids. But you're also going to end up with a, a lot of individual pictures, so you should bring a big SD card. So when you're saying keep the exposure short, so you're not talking like, you know, 25 or 30 second exposures, or in astrophotography, is that considered a shorter exposure? Well, yeah, you should keep your exposure maybe about uh, 10 to 15 seconds um, and crank up the, uh, the sensitivity, and that should be ideal. 
Okay, so some, a few tips for people that might want to get out, and you can certainly just go look at them, but if you want to take some photographs, there's a couple of tips for you. Now, in terms of, can you measure the intensity of, of this year versus other years? Is it always the same, and it just depends on if we're going to see them on cloud cover and those sorts of things, or, or does it change year to year? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a great point. So uh, we've actually developed a network of over 1,000 cameras across the globe that measures the activity of meteor showers and removes all the what we call observation biases. So all the things that might artificially reduce the numbers that we see, um, but kind of compute a calibrated rate. And it's really important to monitor meteor showers, even the Perseids, which are one of the best known meteor showers, best monitored historically, is because they can surprise us. So in 2021, uh, I gave interviews, I did the exact same thing as I did, uh, as I'm doing now, and we didn't really expect anything out the ordinary. And yet two days after the main peak, there was a huge meteor shower outburst. Like th- there were three times more Perseids in about an hour and a half than during the usual peak. And no one predicted that. And we want to make sure that we have cameras that are observing 24-7 to capture uh, those events. Um, and we recently released a new website where you can see those live measurements. Up to about 10 years ago, the state of art was literally just people going out, looking in the sky and counting the number of meteors. And then we would apply a bunch of hand wavy corrections to get the, you know, kind of the calibrated number of meteors, the activity of the meteor shower. Uh, but now we do everything uh, with cameras and this new service provides and feeds data directly to space agencies. So NASA uses our uh, estimates and our measurements to uh, inform their models. And not just that, but they also use these measurements operationally. So if there is a predicted outburst, uh, something that might happen or might not happen, they will use our data to direct the astronauts and the spacecraft to, uh, or, you know, optimal optimal safety. So I discussed before uh, about astronaut safety, but satellites can also be affected. Uh, so in 1993, there was a predicted Perseid outburst during which the most expensive and the biggest civilian satellite to date uh, called Olympus, launched by the European Space Agency, was destroyed by a Perseid. So it cost something like half a billion dollars. And uh, it was operational just uh, for, I think, a few weeks or a few months. And it was destroyed. And now if we can predict meteor shower outbursts and we can measure their intensity, we can direct spacecraft operators to orient their spacecraft in such a way to minimize the chance of impact. So they can turn kind of the narrow side of the spacecraft towards where the, the meteors are coming from or some spacecraft, they have a hard side. So if there's an impact, it wouldn't really matter much. Hmm. Well, it's it's fascinating stuff, Dennis. We thank you for your time. I take it you'll be out this weekend. Is the weather forecast where you are optimum uh, to be able to just with the naked eye see these uh, meteors? Yeah, so far, so uh, so far, um, southwestern Ontario is about fifty fifty. Uh, so uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll definitely look at the forecast on on Saturday. But this, so far, it's uh, it's looking good. Yeah. Appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, we are talking about COVID. Uh, Some may think we are pre-COVID. Most of us, I think, are treating it and living our lives as if it's pre-COVID. 
But there are apparently still some things that we might want to pay attention to. And so we brought in the big gunner today. We are joined by Jason Tetro. He is known as the germ guy. He is a microbiologist. You may know him from the Super Awesome Science Show. He is also the author of The Germ Code and The Germ Files. How are you doing, Jason? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. Um, so the EG... Five is that the subvariant that uh, scientists right now are trying to keep track of? Yeah, so there's an EG five, and then there's an EG five point one, but they're pretty much the the same lineage at this point. Those are the ones that um, we're really keeping an eye on, uh, and you know we we talk about this happening in the United States and maybe in Africa and everything, but here in Canada, EG five point one is just skyrocketing up the charts. I mean, it's more popular than Taylor Swift tickets right now. <laughs> so um, are we, t- I get the sense sometimes that we are just actively avoiding information on COVID because we are just crossing <laughs> our fingers and hoping against hope that we are what we like to call post COVID uh, because yeah. I don't, I'm not hearing a lot about this. Well, no. And one of the big problems that we're facing right now is that after the the three years uh, leading up to the summer of 2023, we essentially were in a position where we were constantly being afraid. And then we had the release of, you know, the XBBs that came out that were going to circulate around the world and get everybody sick and really cause a massive amount of problems, except it never did. And as a result of that, people went, oh, yay, that means that we've reached this, uh, a level of immuno- immunity in the population that doesn't matter what happens with this particular virus. It could mutate all at once, and it's not going to cause a problem like we saw back in 2020. And while that may be the case, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're post-COVID, because what we have to do now is realize that for every person that is infected, okay, well, actually, for let's just say for every 100 people that's in, that are infected, about right. 35% of them are going to have some kind of secondary effects, sequelae, as we call them. So it could be cardiovascular, it could be kidney, and in many of the cases, it's some kind of depressive or psychological um, downturn, okay? And what happens is that that could then end up in long COVID, which is a huge problem that we're facing right now with about 15% of the population who have had COVID suffering from that. And every time you now get COVID, you go right back to square one and have to start all over again. And that seems, uh, 35%, that seems like a not insignificant percentage of the population that if they were to to contract this, that might have some, yeah. uh, you know, relatively to very serious uh, ramifications. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I have numerous friends in Europe and in Asia, and it's been circulating there, both the um, the latest XBB, the EG5, um, and, and a couple of them have come down with it. And like I said, they went back to square one. It was almost like it was back to 2020 for them. They had the headaches. They had the sore throats. They were incredibly fatigued. They couldn't move. They were taking three weeks off of work. And the reality is they didn't think that COVID was going to have that effect on them. So they weren't wearing their masks. They weren't taking precautions. They weren't taking care of themselves. And of course, now they're, they're suffering. So 
here in Canada, now that we're starting to see the rise that we've seen in everywhere else, it kind of behooves us to start thinking about how we can protect ourselves so that we don't end up with the the type of infection and longer term problems that result uh, from from you know not protecting ourselves. And it seems uh, that it would be at least at this stage a, a real stretch to think that we would be going back to anything near the uh, you know sort of the mandated restrictions that that we had three or four years ago. So would this be more like, and if you look around, say in Europe, is it more, uh, you know, taking personal responsibility? If you, if you want to uh, sequester yourself a little bit, or if you want to wear a mask and that sort of thing, because I I just can't see governments around the world going back to where we were. Oh yeah. No, we're governments have learned their lesson. They are not going back. We've had enough exchanges of governments across the world to realize that those types of (laughs) mandates are not going to be good for you to maintain your pension later on, <laughs> put it that way. So the reality is we now live in a situation where there is a large percentage of the population who have some kind of immunity. And if you have been vaccinated with the BA1, BA2 booster, okay, then there's a really good likelihood you're going to have about 50% protection against all of these variants that are coming down the road, including the EG5, EG5-1. What it becomes a problem is that if all of a sudden you're in a situation where you haven't been vaccinated, which is very, very low, or you haven't gotten that one, two booster, which is up, you know, there's about 60 to 70 percent of the population that didn't get that one. Now you're at a higher risk of having something bad happening to you. And now you have to determine whether or not you can either protect yourself and here in Alberta, you can't get a booster anymore unless you happen to fit a particular criteria or you've got to start figuring out how to protect yourself. But the government's not going to do it for you. Not not anymore. So I'm sure there are people listening that have lost track of shots, boosters. So this yeah. booster, this particular booster that you're talking about, like, well, when did that come out and, and, and when, if people had gotten it, when might that have been? Yeah, so that would have been around the middle to fall of last year. Uh, that's probably when you would have gotten the one, two, because then around November leading into December, we had the four or five, <laughs> because we all thought that the four or five was going to be the direction it was going to go. And then it went, mm, no, we actually had a recombination event between two twos. And anyway, the BA1, BA2 is the best one out of them all. So there is going to be a new booster that's coming out, very similar to the flu shot that hopefully will be covering all of the XBBs and down lineages from there, which will include the EG5, EG5.1. And in this particular case, it might actually be to our benefit because all the new lineages essentially are, you know, descendants of the same ancestor. So if you can protect against that one ancestor, then you're, you know, giving yourself that added advantage against all the ones downstream. So I think what I'm hoping for is that this new uh, booster that's going to come out in the fall may give us an opportunity to have a quasi-universal so that we may not have to worry too, too much about other variants that are going to come around. That being said, until that moment comes and you haven't had the one, two, you're at risk. So protect yourself. So are we then potentially, uh, if mm-hmm. we get to the fall and this new universal booster is available, yeah. Because when we were back in, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of the, the throes of the pandemic, there was this, yeah. uh, you know, there was this notion that at some point we will get to the point where just like you get a flu shot every year, you will get a COVID shot every year. Mm-hmm. 
if you want, and then and then that'll be it. It'll take care of it. Is that the hope now with this one potentially coming out in the fall? Um, so what had happened is that, like the so when you have the flu shot, right? It it mutates in numerous different places at the same time, which is why we need to go and get a different shot every year. With COVID, that, and and if anyone's heard me on the radio over the last three years, that's exactly what I said. You know, you're going to get your flu and COVID shots at the same time. Well, what we're finding out is that this particular virus actually mutates very differently than the flu so that we may be able to have that, that like I said, quasi-universal because you never know, but it would be a shot that you would get that you probably wouldn't have to get another one for another year or maybe even longer. And the reason I say that is there's some data that's just recently come out that actually shows that 52 weeks after a person got a 1-2 booster, they still had protection. It was only 50%, but it was still good protection against the new lineages that are coming out. So we may have already had it if you got the one too, but hopefully the one that's coming out later this year is going to give us that, you know, added protection that's going to last much more than just a single year. I can't guarantee that. Science is weird, but I think that in this (laughs) sense, you know, I've been doing it for 35 years. Science always has a way of making you just go, oh, I never saw that coming. (laughs) Uh, and so, so for for this, uh, and as you say, it's it's kind of it is in Canada, and it is an issue now. Uh, you talked yeah. about your friends uh, in Europe. So, where have the sort of uh, real hot spots been over the last? I don't know if it is it weeks or months. What are we talking here? So the the last months um, have been Australia uh, because it's been the winter season down there, and right. uh, South Africa has also had some issues. Um, We've seen a little bit in the sub-Saharan Africa areas, but again, it's very difficult to kind of get enough data out of there. Now that we're going to be starting to transition as we're sort of moving away from summer going into fall, it's going to start moving up. And so I think right now we should be looking at Brazil and we should be looking at Mexico and then eventually into the United States because that's the seasonality of flu and we should be seeing the same thing now with respect to COVID. All right, Jason, uh, I think we're all hoping that we wouldn't be having these sorts of conversations four <laughs> years on, but here we are, and, and we thank I you know. as always for your, for your expertise on this. Thank you. That was such a pleasure. Take care.